Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 160, Why Italy Matters. The past century of narrative we covered was more than a century. It was 113 years between 912 and 1025 AD, and although we paused briefly in 976, we still have a lot of ground to cover. And add to the past, the future. The past century has been a time of prosperity and expansion. The next century will see the collapse of the borders in East and West. So we have a strange job to do. We have to talk about why this past century has been so successful while also explaining how it could fall apart soon afterwards. The result, as we travel to Italy today, is to look more at the big picture than the details. I want to remind you what the situation is and what it means for the wider empire, rather than get bogged down in names, dates and places. For the past 400 years, Italy has been the last item on the agenda. The piece of imperial territory which receives the least attention from the Roman state. To underline its lack of importance, two huge armadas were assembled by Nicephorus Phocas and Basil II respectively, both intended to reconquer Sicily. At no point was there any consideration to take those resources and invest them in the heel or toe of Italy itself. In spite of this neglect, Calabria, Apulia and Longobardia remained in Byzantine hands and were somewhat flourishing by 1025. The past century has seen the fragmentation of power across Italy, continue. A fragmentation which has characterised politics in the peninsula since Justinian's reconquest. Here is a brief reminder of the situation. The last time we were here, we dealt mainly with the decline of the Carolingian Empire. Charlemagne's united Europe was divided up by his progeny and split into three different major kingdoms and several smaller fiefdoms. The Kingdom of Italy, comprising the centre and north of the country we know today, was briefly independent, 
but it was then absorbed by the larger German Empire to the north. The popes maintained a precarious independence at Rome, then further south lay the three Lombard principalities of Salerno, Capua and Benevento. Along the coasts were also the independent cities of Gaeta, Amalfi and Naples. That just leaves the Byzantines with the ankle, toe and heel of the boot. Sicily remained under the control of the Fatimid Caliphate, though its emirs usually enjoyed a great deal of independence. And throughout the 10th century there were civil conflicts on the island which saw both the Christian population fighting the Muslims and the Muslims fighting each other. As you can see, power was divided across ten different states, and the three biggest powers, the Fatimids, the Germans and the Byzantines, were all half-heartedly involved. Each saw Italy as a low priority and made no serious attempts to simplify the map. The Byzantines spent much of the 10th century simply fending off attacks from their rivals. When united, the Muslims would invade from the south. Often they were just looking for booty, and the Romans could lock themselves up in their fortresses and wait for them to leave. However, there were occasions when they would attempt to capture a city. When Basil II was bogged down in Bulgaria, the Arab navy besieged the coastal town of Bari. It was 1002, and it was left to the Venetians to relieve the city. Similarly, on several occasions, the newly minted Holy Roman Emperors would bring a German army south. We discussed one instance during the reign of Nicephorus Phocas in the 960s. Otto I wanted acknowledgement of his imperial title and a Byzantine bride for his son. So he besieged Bari and followed it up with an attack on Cassano. Both cities were well fortified and held out. But Otto got what he wanted from John Zimiskis, who, having murdered Phocas, was happy to cut a deal. In between these larger invasions, there were many squabbles with the Lombard princes, who would attempt to nibble away at the Byzantine position, and occasional moments of cooperation. Way back at the start of our century, in 915, an extraordinary coalition was formed to drive out a nest of Muslim pirates from the Garigliano River. The Pope acted as a broker and brought together forces from seven different Christian states to complete the operation. The papacy was another spoke in the wheel. Getting a friendly pontiff elected remained a goal for all concerned parties. However, it was usually the German emperors who had the final word. In 997, a Byzantine-born bishop was placed on the throne in a coup, only for the unfortunate man to be brutally mutilated by Otto II when the emperor marched on Rome the following year. The Byzantine desire for a balance of power in Italy was beautifully realised in the only major pitched battle of the century. A series of nasty Arab raids drew the attention of Otto II in the late 970s. Basel was now Vasilevs and thoroughly occupied by the civil wars. 
So it was the German emperor who crossed Byzantine territory in the hopes of driving the Muslims out and gaining a huge propaganda victory. In 982, the two sides clashed at Cape Colonna, just south of Crotone. Otto had dragged his Lombard allies with him as they lined up against the emir Al-Qasim. What followed was extremely bloody. The emir was killed, as were both Lombard princes and many senior German figures. The Arabs emerged victorious, and Otto only escaped by jumping aboard a Byzantine ship that was anchored nearby. Without any intention on their part, the Byzantines had been the real winners in this conflict. It was in many ways the blueprint for Byzantine warfare. Their two great rivals in the peninsula had slugged it out and exhausted themselves. Both sides left with little to show for their efforts. Arab raids would continue, but on a reduced scale, and no German emperor would return to the south for some time. The Arabs had no real incentive to colonise the mainland. Every time they established a bridgehead, it united the Christians against them. While for the German emperors, there was little to be gained and much to be lost in trying to annex southern Italy. The longer they stayed, the more time and space they left for plotters back in Saxony. In this power vacuum, the Byzantines could happily maintain their presence. In terms of administration, the Romans adopted the same tactics they used in Armenia. Remember that over in the east they faced a fellow Christian culture, but one whose people looked to a different patriarch, spoke a different language, and used different laws. This was the same situation the Byzantines faced with the Lombards, who made up the majority of the population in the ankle and heel of Italy. They were Latin speakers, loyal to the Pope, and governed by their own German law. So the Romans adopted a policy of toleration. They allowed the Lombards to conduct their own affairs, so long as they paid tax and respected the local garrison. This policy worked, but just as in Armenia, local chronicles report a long list of criminal acts, riots, and other civil disobedience. Clashes between ruler and ruled were only natural, aggravated by the presence of independent Lombard states a few miles down the road, just as there were in Armenia. In order to combat this, the Byzantines were careful to promote loyal bishops, even Latin ones, who could influence the population to continue to support the imperial presence. Just as in Armenia, the government welcomed the settlement of Lombards on imperial territory. They needed strong populations to help defend them from outside incursions. Freed from the Bulgarian War in the 1020s, Basel approved plans to construct a series of fortified towns along the northern border with the Lombard principalities. The new settlements would be filled with families of Lombard origin, but, like the repopulation of Melitene or Theodosiopolis, this was encouraged to make sure that the new homes were filled. To give you a sense of what's coming next, though, let's rewind a few years. In 1009, 
a man named Milo led an insurrection against the Byzantines. We don't know much about him or his motives, but he captured Bari and defeated the local garrison. Naval forces soon arrived and retook the city, and Milo fled north. However, he was a charismatic figure and returned eight years later with the support of the Pope. He also had with him a group of Norman mercenaries. The powerful knights helped him defeat the Byzantines in several battles. This was now a serious rebellion. It's the only disturbance in Italy which history writers at the capital bother to mention. Fortunately for the Romans, the Bulgarian War soon ended, and Basil was able to send one of his capable subordinates with some Varangian troops. Milo was crushed near Canae in October 1018. The following decades were a time of peace and prosperity for the southern Italians. However, the Normans who'd survived would spread news that Italy was a place where men could carve out a kingdom for themselves. Next century, it will be the Normans who fill the power vacuum and drive the Byzantines out of Italy for good. Hopefully, I won't need to explain how this was possible. The Byzantines had always defended Italy last. Only when they faced no wars elsewhere could they spare serious muscle for Calabria and Apulia. Imperial troops were always present in the major cities, but they were not there to deal with serious invasions. They were small garrisons intended to maintain the peace. So we don't really need to discuss why this successful position in the 10th century would collapse in the 11th. It's easy to see the vulnerability of imperial holdings. The Germans and Arabs had marched across it without serious opposition. It's just that no one had seriously attempted conquest. The Normans will, and the Byzantines will be too busy with threats closer to home to respond. Perhaps a more interesting question is why this matters. If Italy was an afterthought to Constantinople, then why did they bother hanging on to it for so long? Why didn't they abandon it when the Arabs were at the gates? I found five answers to this question during the course of my research. One is simply that a lot of people living in Sicily and southern Italy were ethnic Romans. They were Greek-speaking, Orthodox-worshipping Romans. They were the natural subjects of Constantinople, and therefore the government did not want to abandon them. Contacts were maintained throughout the darkest days. Even occupied Sicily still traded with the empire, and so Italian merchants would arrive at the capital, carrying letters from monks and clergy on the island. This communication buttressed the belief on the Bosphorus that their citizens were waiting for them to return. Two is ideological. The Roman emperor still claimed to be God's vice-regent on earth. He still claimed dominion over most of the known world. To abandon Western territory would hand other powers the legal pretext for absorbing it, as had essentially happened to northern Italy, Gaul, and Spain, and so on. Similarly, the Patriarch considered the Orthodox of southern Italy to be under his care. To abandon them 
would be a dereliction of duty and it would strengthen the jurisdictional position of the papacy. Three is the papacy itself. Despite numerous squabbles, the Byzantines still recognised the authority of the seat of St. Peter's. Over the last two centuries, the Pope had been a vital arbiter in major theological debates. His decisions about iconoclasm and Leo VI's various marital issues had been seen as vital in securing an acceptable solution. The presence of Byzantine troops in southern Italy was seen as a necessity to have any influence over Rome at all. Twice in the past century, the empire had a hand in the election of a new pontiff, and just generally maintaining a strong connection with the Eternal City was seen as important for both religious and diplomatic reasons. A friendly pope could help provide smooth relations with the French and German monarchs. Four is strategic. Whoever controlled Sicily controlled the Mediterranean. All shipping that moved from west to east, or vice versa, had to go at least past Sicily. When they controlled the island, Constantinople had been able to monitor and influence events in the west, as well as prevent surprise attacks from that direction. That's why both Phocas and Basil II had sunk tons of money and men into armadas, rather than, say, spending more on the eastern armies. Similarly, control of southern Italy allowed Byzantium to dominate the Adriatic. This helped them keep a handle on the Bulgarians, and it kept trade and information flowing through Venice to the west. Finally, five, is that I think Italy was closer to Constantinople than we tend to think it was. Today, we wouldn't see much of a connection between, say, Naples and Istanbul. There's no obvious reason to connect those two cities, But in the ancient world, it was far quicker to get from Naples to Constantinople than it was to get from, say, Naples to Paris. Today we'd see those two cities as far more connected. But in the ancient world, travelling by land was far slower and more dangerous than sailing. And I know you know that. But think about how this would affect your concept of geography. For a Byzantine, it would take over a month to travel the Via Ignatia, to Dyrrhachium, whereas you could be in Egypt in a week. Or imagine trying to cross from the north of Italy to the south. By land, this was a very complicated journey. You had to cross mountains and several different states, whereas an imperial official could hop along a series of Greek ports and arrive in Sicily in a fortnight. For the Byzantines, Italy was far closer to home than we think of it today. The loss of Italy, when it comes, will matter for all these reasons and more. A lot of your end-of-the-century questions were about Western perceptions of Byzantium, and vice versa. Obviously, this will become ever more important as we enter the era of the Crusades. In 1025, Italy was the place where East and West met. Latin bishops serving their Lombard congregations could still be loyal servants of the emperor in Constantinople, while Greek-speaking monasteries dotted the landscape right up to the streets of Rome itself, placing themselves under the ecclesiastical authority of the Pope. 
In fact, many clergy who'd fled the empire during iconoclasm had never forgotten the sanctuary which the pontiff had provided. Men from these backgrounds would go on to have impressive careers in the courts of Europe and Byzantium. They brought with them the opinion that both sides could work together and their differences were not worth falling out over. These cross-cultural links helped maintain this sense of brotherhood. During the time when Bulgaria converted to Christianity, there were serious disputes between Latin and Greek clergy, not only jurisdictional, but doctrinal. One of the reasons these disagreements did not spiral into a major controversy was the Byzantine presence in Italy. The interaction of the two sides there maintained a sense that deep down we are all still Romans. We are all still in the fellowship of Christ and worthy of one another's respect. The conquest of southern Italy by the Normans will begin the erosion of this special relationship. It will make Byzantium seem that bit more distant, that bit more alien, that bit more expendable to Western minds. That's why Italy, afterthought that it so often was, still mattered. Next time, we travel north and begin to explore developments in Venice and the post-Carolingian world. What's been happening there that's relevant to us? And what were Western perceptions of Byzantium and its century of success? <laughs>